<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. I mean, no one plans to get sick, and yet... Here we are. My name is Matthew Zachary. I survived cancer, a stroke, and COVID-19, and somehow I'm still here. I also survived our stupid broken healthcare system, and I want to help you survive it too. So let's go make healthcare suck less together. Because you know what? We're all out of patience. Hey, that's the name of the show. And hello, everyone. Welcome back to Out of Patience. A quick reminder before we get started, if you like the show, and I hope you do, and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave me a rating, review, anything to validate my frail ego. On the show today, Dr. Jamie Wells is many things, but boring is not one of them. Prepare yourself for some frenetic genius conversation with the director of the Research Science Institute, leadership council member of the Wistar Institute, advisor to the Global Blockchain Business Council, and adjunct professor at Drexel University's School of Biomedical Engineering. I mean, like, holy shit, I'm the dumbest guy in the room, and that's a good problem to have. But what's most important about Jamie has nothing to do with any of that, because She's a Nickelodeon Double Dare champion and friend of Mark Summers. Need I say more? So strap in for a conversation riddled with so much IQ that you may need to listen to it backwards like a Led Zeppelin album just to make sense of it. No, no, no. But seriously, she's going to blow your mind. Enjoy the show. I want the listeners to know that we tried to do this once. (laughs) And karma was against us. It was three years ago, I think, when I was at Stupid Cancer. That's true. And there was a wonderful belief that if you and I were on the air together, the equipment wouldn't break. And it broke. I think that our banter was so epic that no modern technology was capable of capturing it. It was it was too forward thinking we for the time. We had such a fabulous conversation <laughs> that lasted, I have no idea, for the <laughs> ages. And then the damn thing didn't record. And then the backup didn't record either. Yes. So it's our fault, not technology, because we're that powerful together. Well, I'm going to throw you on the bus, under the bus and say it was your fault since I didn't touch any of the instrumentation. Okay, or I'm going to own a third of that. <laughs> Just a third. But, you know, I did partake in some of the groundbreaking discussion, the revolutionary ideas that we had. So, but, you know, you know it that. was a missed opportunity from a timeline perspective. Because now we have so much more to talk about. I know. You've changed jobs, what, 11 times since then? <laughs> no. 10, 10, max 10. No, I just keep getting many on top of on top of each other. I think that I didn't foresee that as the way to go. In the first 13 years of my career, I kind of stuck to one thing. Oh my God. Anyway, Jamie Wells, thank you for coming on Out of Patience. 
Thank you so much for having me. I think it's really important. I think the single most important thing that my listeners would like to know about you is how the hell did you get on Double Dare? <laughs> well, actually, this is a really good story. Look it up, kids. Double Dare, Nickelodeon, 1980s. So I think you're neglecting to acknowledge the fact that I'm a Double Dare champion. Even better. So I won Double Dare and I did the obstacle course with my partner with six seconds to spare. And I got to take my parents to Disneyland, <laughs> Disney World at the time and got all these prizes and stuff. It was and so much fun. And was it Mark Summers? He became your friend or something? Mark Summers is awesome. We've become friends. Yes. And I see him often. In, I've seen him in New York. I've seen him in Philly when he's come to Philadelphia. But actually, they were filming in Philadelphia, which is where I went to school growing up. And they auditioned my whole grade. And I'll never forget the headmaster of the middle school and everything coming to find me down the hallway and said, Jamie, why aren't you trying out for the Double Dare thing? You have to do it. I'm like, okay. So I go. I mean, who did not know Double Dare back then, right? (laughs) So you knew of Double Dare. And the thing about it was basically two students were selected from my school, which I I was one of them. And and this other boy was chosen. We were partners and we competed that day. And the rest of the grade got the whole grade, got the whole day off to be in the audience for the taping. But when they auditioned us at the school, I'll never forget. The producers told me the question that nailed it for me was they asked everybody, you had to do stunts on stage, like that apple cart thing where I had to crawl across the stage and and roll an apple across like my nose. They were James Bond aspects of this. Yes. But I'll never forget. The producers asked every one of us in the audition, if you could go to an ice cream store and get whatever you want. It doesn't cost anything. You can get anything you want at the ice cream store. So everybody's giving these elaborate, you know, bubble gum, flavor, strawberry, whatever. And I said, <laughs> I said, I want a scoop of vanilla. And if I'm in the mood, chocolate sprinkles, but only if I'm in the mood. And they said to me, that's all you want. You can have anything. And my response was, if something isn't great in its purest form, I'm not interested. And that that was apparently. Did they ask you how old you were? Were you like Drew Barrymore in that movie, like a forty year old person in high school? Uh, What's so funny? I saw one of her interviews young, Um, but it was no, it was an incredible experience. And I remember going there, and in the back, the opposing team and my partner, everybody was so nervous, and I was trying to act cool before and be like, "It's no big deal. It's just our classmates out there. Not a big deal." And we go out there, and the lights of the cameras come on, and I'm like a deer in headlights. So when you watch it. The first few. St- wait, wait. Can we watch it? You can watch it. My friend found it online. It's online. Right, you can we were going to put a link in the description <laughs> to this show. And Mark Summers actually says, um, asked me what I want to be. And he said, and I said, a neurosurgeon. And so in when he takes me over to the Double Dare Obstacle Course, he's like, I'm here with a future brain surgeon and a singer. And actually, I started my first residency in neurosurgery, ultimately. So those words were, were sealed in faith. Dear Mark Summers, on, on thank you Double so Dare. much. But it took after after the first set with the lights and you see me kind of deer in headlights. Then I get over it and then I start answering questions and not looking at my partner. And we did all of these. I mean, I had a, a chocolate sundae made on my head. I was blindfolded and had to spray seltzer to get an apple off my partner's head. So it was a lot of fun. It was an incredible experience. And what was so funny about it was that well into my 20s, people around the world, I remember family friends called from Hawaii saying they saw the 12-year-old version of me on Double Dare because it was syndicated. So it just kept coming back and back. And then it was a few years ago 
that a friend of mine called me to say ABC's The Goldbergs was doing an episode with Double Dare because that show's filmed in the 80s from Philadelphia. Right, right, right. And, the, and Adam Goldberg went to my high school in Philadelphia. So I wound up watching, you know, I turned it on and I see the episode about Double Dare. So I tweeted a picture of me from my episode from the 80s or right, whatever right. of Double Dare. And... I posted uh, ABC's The Goldbergs should have consulted a true Double Dare champion for tonight's of episode. Of course you did. So Adam Goldberg starts chiming in, Jamie, I didn't know you were on Double Dare. Then Mark Summers chimed in. That's and then he, so funny. He wound up calling me the next day. And ever since, we've been in touch. And he's been wonderful and so supportive. And he's so interesting and has done a lot of different things over the years with Food Network and stuff like that. So it was an incredible experience. And it kept on going and going and people have so much nostalgia for it. I received messages from around the world. I've done so many different things in life and I received messages from Myanmar, Yale, you know, all over the world when they saw because my my picture that I posted on Twitter or whatever it was about the Goldbergs episode basically went viral. Within hours, I was being contacted all over the world. People I never knew love Double Dare who've known I've done other things of interest or stuff like that. Well, that's like the that. question is like, what are you most well known for now, right? <laughs> Double Dare is not in your LinkedIn profile, but it needs to be my, immediately. My good friend would tell you that I should be having that as my opener on LinkedIn yep. is my Double Dare championship status. I mean, that's so much Gen X cred, you have no idea. Is it? <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it's like people who are on like the first TRL that are like 10 years younger than us, like that's their equivalent. <laughs> I was on TRL season one on the camera, right? That's what people wanted. Oh my god! Have you ever been on any kind of game? I was on the show? Price is Right. Were you really? Yeah, I didn't win, but fuck me, the guy next to me was picked. <laughs> Did you get next to me? The human being sitting to my left was chosen to go to come on down to Bob Barker. So they got you at least on camera as the other guy goes down. Yeah, I was like the guy that was really disappointed, saying like, "What the fuck?" In my mind, that the guy to my left was chosen. To go and he, he didn't win, so it kind of felt okay. They didn't win, but I ha I still have my giant Matthew, all caps little ticket sticker that they stuck on. I me. wear that every day. Oh yeah, I think that's the coolest thing. So now you're a doctor. I yes, I'm a physician. I started, as I said to you, I started my first residency in neurosurgery, thinking I wanted to be a brain surgeon. So. I started that, realized the reality was not the dream, wound up switching into pediatrics, and I was affiliated. I practiced in New York for over a decade, affiliated with NYU Langone, Mount Sinai, Beth Israel, St. Vincent's, was in private practice. What did you study? Because it wasn't neurosurgery. No, I wound up getting boarded in pediatrics. Okay. And so I practiced for many, many years. Uh, during that time, I also, at some points, was a volunteer for the Boomer Science and Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, answering all of their medical questions online as a, a medical expert. And I just loved my patient population. I believe in an old world style of medicine. 100% of my patients had my cell phone and email. I did home visits when possible. Uh, I just come from all my grandparents lived with me growing up. We all participated in their home care. I, my dad's had three different cancers. I've been a caregiver. I've been a medical practitioner. Towards the latter part of my, I probably had about 90% joy, 10% frustration in practice for the longest time, which is pretty amazing. All 90% joy. mess up the system is for that's doctors, right. yes. For the latter portion of that, I really was getting unsatisfied and deeply concerned about the ever-widening gap between policy and practice and felt that the people making decisions for patients were jeopardizing patient safety, which is to me, they were really 
decimating the doctor-patient relationship and the sanctity of that. And so the primary, I just felt that, that nobody's listening to the primary stakeholders. So I, I'm one not to complain forever. I kind of give myself a deadline to complain. So I shifted out of practice a couple of years back and was director of medicine for an education advocacy nonprofit. I published about four, over 400 articles on med tech innovation to health policy. And it was really interesting because prior to that, I had been on anything any kind of media form as a medical expert, but it was always to discuss what they deemed was important. And as you and I know, media can be used for good and for evil. <laughs> and I Very really clearly, would. Yes. And the two of us are about utilizing it for good. And I think it can be impactful and just help so many people and assuage suffering. And I'm motivated to assuage suffering. I'm not motivated to um, really sensationalize or, you know, fear monger. And so I found that prior to shifting out of practice. Everything that I was talking about in the in the public forum was to try and bring the temperature down on the sensationalism and, and you know, measure things out. But it was always, as I said, about what they deemed relevant, which a lot of times is the least relevant. So the sad reality is it took me quitting medical practice to get a voice. As I said, I wound up being able to write, I was liberated. I wound up being able to write on topics that I felt were putting patient safety at risk, whether it was in health policy, as I stated, Alzheimer's, disease, certain disease states, to cancer research, to medtech innovation, as I described, all of these different things. And I realized how I was then controlling a narrative and getting topics that I felt was and that I knew that other people who are in practice can't uh, have the freedom to discuss all the time because they're restrained by their current circumstances. So I got to really get a forum. I did extensive outreach and I saw the tangible effects of all of the writing and outreach I did. My stuff was used in schools of public health. I wound up spending an afternoon at the White House Medical Unit. I had written about the weaponization of healthcare, uh, in especially in politics. But I'm very apolitical. I care about what is the issue. How do we help the most people? I can work with anybody. I like to. I think that most innovation is lost at the interdisciplinary knowledge gaps. And I just think there's always a common ground to be found. And if you focus on what are the things that we can solve together then um, that was really something that is my priority. I have a question. Empathy in medicine, the topic of the decade, of the millennium, right? A lot of people are born with empathy. Some people can potentially learn empathy. But odds are there's a bell curve where empathy plays a role in medical practice. My first question is, do you feel that pediatrics lends itself towards a more empathic type of medical practitioner? Or is there a better way to ensure that empathy plays a role in patient care in non-pediatrics? First of all, it's a phenomenal question, and there's so many layers to that question. I am somebody who utilizes an empathetic lens, and I'll get to shifting out of that Washington, D.C. world into the things that I've been doing in the last you know year or so. I don't think that anything, when it, albeit technology, albeit medical practice, functions, thrives, and truly heals and cures or transitions things from fatal diseases to chronic illnesses that are manageable without uh, using a scope of, of lens of empathy. I think human-centered design is the only type of design we should be making, or else 
you know, electronic health records are the most negatively disruptive piece of material because nobody who actually are the primary stakeholders who care about patients ever see them or do anything ever, about had them, anything right. to, had any voice into how they were constructed, how they were utilized. Uh, so, but you know, I think honestly, most people who go into medicine are driven by helping people. There's certainly stereotypes to different, as in anything, to different fields. But when it comes to pediatrics, you know, remember, I started in a surgical subspecialty. So I had certain attributes when it came to, when I shifted fields, I was very good at procedures and, and being deft and precise because I was driven to going into a surgical subspecialty. But I also had that other side of me where I do think I think pediatricians are the best people. I do. You're here. <laughs> I mean. They've done good by my kids. That's a little bit biased. And my my father would tell you that he's my geriatric patient. So I, I always say everybody needs a pediatrician. I don't care how old you are. And I have had, I've held hands of people. I've been, I've been a part of their care, no matter whether they're an adult or a child or anything like that. But I do think that you do learn. Geriatrics and pediatrics have always been my favorite because the populations are truth tellers. They tell it like it is. They know what they want. They know what they don't want. Things aren't hidden with nuance and agenda, which right. is a lot of the times the things you have happen in between. I don't necessarily agree with everything that, that both populations have to say, but you're also navigating a family. Pediatrics is so unique because it it really is the grand humbler and equalizer having a child. You could be a CEO, chairman of the board, six foot five, powerful, where every adult would shudder when you walk in a room. And I've seen toddlers put, <laughs> lay the gauntlet down. And it's I've found it enjoyable every time because the toddler always wins against the CEO I mean, or anything of like course. that. So I, you could be an artist. You could be a really... Parenting is the great parenting is a grand level humbler. Center, yeah. And you really are at a it's a very unique time in people's lives. So I think that that does bolster empathy in that people carry a weight on of worry on their shoulder that they never did before once they have a child and they just transition that worry from one thing to the next. And I think if you you know, that's why I'm never a fan of these. I think they're only divisive and I think they treat people like monoliths and they don't treat people with empathy. So I've never been a fan of pro-vaccine, anti-this, anti-this, pro-this. If you take five minutes to have an actual conversation, you learn that people's fears are not monoliths. They are nuanced and they develop from different things and they're cultivated from different things. And a lot of times it just takes a brief conversation to engender that kind of trust and foment a successful therapeutic relationship. So I do think that certainly pediat pediatricians and a lot of the experience, because you're talking to families at one in the morning and parents tend to don't, not care what happens to them, but if they trust you with the care of your child, they, they, you become a part of their family. And it's a very unique experience where every single patient of yours, you have two sets of parents, sometimes four, three sets of parents with new types of families. You have grandparents who come every single time. So you have such, you could have four to eight people who are part of your every one child experience. Understood. And so I do think it's a unique thing. And you try, you also are dealing with minors who can't make decisions for themselves. They're afraid. You know, people always compare veterinary medicine to pediatric medicine because there are points where children can't speak and tell you what it is that's hurting. So you have to be able to really utilize all your senses, listen to families. Parents know their children. Um, I'm not a fan of arrogance in anything. And especially medicine, I think there's always more to learn. Unfortunately, I think a lot of the constructs of medical practice 
wear people down. They're so burned out and so worked, overworked. Back with our guest after the break. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So let's talk about this massive behemoth of digital health, right? Online technology and resources. You mentioned electronic medical records. I read somewhere, and I'll find the source, something like 90% of the billions of dollars going into emerging digital health technology will only be utilized by people under 50 years old who know how to use it, when in fact 90% of the population that needs to benefit from it don't understand it. And the burden falls on people like us, caregivers. What's your take on that? Well, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, case in point, how COVID signing up for vaccination, a lot of elderly or, you know, people who didn't grow up with this kind of stuff, it was made it so complicated to get your appointment utilizing the online system. It, It was so unnecessary how it was. And you have to meet people where you are, where they are in medicine. And especially with respect to health tech, one of the things that has been incredible for me is in this last year, Drexel University School of Biomedical Engineering Science and Health Systems spearheaded the nation's first degree program in pediatric engineering. What is pediatric engineering? Well, most medical devices, most medical therapeutics are designed for adults. And they try to retrofit. The old way of thinking is to try and retrofit them for children. It doesn't work. Children are not little adults. I think the other aspect to dovetail on what I was saying previously is kids go through, and especially pediatricians, you're cognizant of your patient population. They go through biopsychosocial developmental changes. They go from being premature and have the heart the size of a walnut to having to go through multiple phases to get to adolescence. You can't use the same heart pump 
that you could use for a 50 year old man for a premature infant. So but why would one even assume that that's what should be done? In that's the first how place? it's always been, which is why you're only now seeing some of these clinical trials with pediatric patients with respect to vaccination. So everything has always been designed uh, mostly in medicine around the 70 kilo adult male. And everybody responds differently. So there are things that are wonderful to know in medicine that most people are affected by. But every single medication for children is based on milligrams per kilogram per dose. And that's not the same in the adult world. So you have to know who you're tailoring it to. A lot of these health tech and digital health have no medical people involved. It's all Silicon Valley folks or business folks and things like that involved with it. So that's part of the issue. But designing in accessibility with health tech, you know, I've seen the most genius designs in the world that sit on the shelf forever. And if they're not going to be utilized by a physician or a patient, then they don't have value. So I, I, you know, people like to throw words like personalized medicine and all these things around, but that's actually the reality. You have to take the information and tailor it to the patient at hand, because what's going to work for you is not going to be necessarily what works for the single parent of three children who has two jobs and, you know, these other things. How bespoke can you possibly get? Because, I mean, you talk about the, the jargon of precision medicine. Right. It used to be just napalm everyone and we'll see who nets out. And today it's like, well, this is exactly for you, but it's three million dollars. Where do we draw the line between what works for a person and what might work for a larger group of cohorts? Well, I think that, number one, if you don't feel your physician is listening to you, find another physician. Sometimes that's also a a constellation of their environment in which they're working. And sometimes you don't always have that other choice. But there's so many options to seek out to get better information. If you don't feel that you're being heard and you don't feel that you're a partner in your decision making, then that's a problem. And that's the first thing. Because one thing in medicine is when you do it right the first time, you really prevent a lot of these. You can't necessarily avoid completely an ominous diagnosis or things like that. But there are absolute ways to prevent unintended harms and just unnecessary suffering. So you have to be a partner with the person who's taking care of you. You have to really be given informed consent and know who you are and who you're not. Some people like all the information in the world. Other people don't. It feel it stirs up their anxiety. So finding the right combination is incredibly important. And in the cancer world, you have to trust and have a good therapeutic relationship with your oncologist. If you don't, it's not going to be beneficial. And I do think actually that world in the cancer world, I've seen oncologists really try and work with trying to allow someone to live with cancer as opposed to it taking over by having you know, truly alternative schedules to getting their chemotherapy treatments, trying new things, holding off, trying, and then dropping one of the chemo agents. So I'm very hopeful. And I actually like some of the things that I've seen in that sphere, having been on the caregiver side of that uh, in the adult population in particular. So with regard to oncology, which is, you know, my backstory, I've heard multiple sides of the following conversation. I'd rather my doctor be a robot who knows how to take care of me with no personality and I'll deal with the nurse if they have one versus my doctor should be a therapist as well. But if it compromises his skill set, so be it. And I would say that, again, you have to know who you are. I want humanity. If, if this year has taught me nothing, I am so opposed to the unconscionable nature that people have had to suffer alone based on a lot of policy decisions. I think that's just totally antithetical to the Hippocratic Oath and the the oath I took as a physician to allow people. I have had family members and loved ones in the hospital during this time and, of course, you know, have practiced medicine at times where there were different 
things going on. So I've seen extremes in a lot of scenarios. But I think that what we've learned in this year is people are very uncomfortable with ambiguity in general. And this year really took out the fact that, you know, people can have the perfect job, the perfect life, the perfect this. But control is a false perception to begin with. And when people have a cancer diagnosis, especially or chronic disease, they feel more out of control. And that's something that people can't deal with a lot of the time in a, in a natural, typical scenario, let alone when they have a disease like that. So they want to control dis- different aspects. I don't think that there's a panacea or a, right, a broad stroke of what's right for different people. But I can say that I, you know, we know that continuity of care improves outcomes. I cannot fathom a world where a robot delivering every single piece of care. And I think that there have been a lot of shortfalls you know, a lot of negative things that have reverberated as a result of the restrictions and the pulling out of humanity, humanity and healthcare this year with other treatments. Like people are going, are not seeking medical care. There are things that are being like telemedicine is good for certain things, but it is not a substitute for a lot of other things. So people are going to be presenting with disease further down the pike. But I I don't subscribe to a, a medical world that lacks empathy, humanity and is inaccessible. But that brings us to your role now at the Research Science Institute, collaboratively sponsored. I'm required to say this, folks. Collaboratively <laughs> sponsored by the Emma by the again, and that brings. <laughs> I can't even say the sentence. So right. I'm very excited because I'm the director of. I'm newly the director of the Research Science Institute, which is collaboratively sponsored by the Massachusetts Institute of Technology or MIT and the Center for Excellence in Education. I'm or glad CEE. you said it because I can't read all those syllables. <laughs> yes, and why I would say. I'm so excited about it is basically RSI is a CEE uh, was co-founded by Joanne De Janeiro, who's the current president, and Admiral Hyman Rickover, who's considered the father of the nuclear navy. And it was intended to further STEM scholars to help with societal advancement in science, biomedical space, everything. So the Research Science Institute that I'm the director of. We run an intensive program that selects, it's cost-free, so it reduces all barriers. A lot of STEM programs for top scholars are costly, and so that can really drive barriers. So what's so wonderful about this is that it's cost-free. We take about the, the top 80 STEM scholars, university, high school, and international scholars around the world. So entering their senior year, the summer after their junior year of high school. They do intensive research. They uh, partner with some of the best scientists in the world. It's held at MIT. So a lot of these, one of a couple of weeks ago, a student from last summer won the Regeneron Science Talent Search. She won $250,000 top prize for Wait, that. At, at what age? <laughs> Probably 16, 17. That's extraordinary. So, and another top uh, finisher won $50,000. So you're talking about very notable alumni of RSI. Are, um, Terrence, Aren't you an alumni of RSI too? I am an alumni of Let's RSI. mention that part. I, I forgot you to did, mention that yeah. part. But, and actually what's so funny is when I did it, I was housed, it was like the year or two before they moved to MIT. So it was in Washington, D.C. And one student's project was restructuring the flight pattern in Dulles International Airport and another got national security clearance to go to the Pentagon 
on. And I had breast cancer, gene therapy, breast cancer research at Georgetown Lombardi Cancer Research Center was my summer project. I mean, I reprogrammed the flights <laughs> on Tuesdays. Like that, don't, that, I, that's not impressive. Believe it or not, you're going to pass out. This was my one shot at being an Olympian. I was supposed to be a member of the U.S. team to represent the United States in the U.S. Biology Olympics. It was supposed to be held in Poprad, Slovakia, Czechoslovakia back then. And my dreams were dashed because the political climate was volatile, so they had to cancel the trip. But the Center for Excellence in Education has been in my life. They nurture scholars from that point. Now they can boast over 3,000 have graduated the Research Science Institute. Some of the, the co-founder of Pinterest, Ben Silverman, is an alum, the developer of CRISPR Technologies, Fang Zhang, who's at the Broad Institute at MIT, is a, an alum, Terrence Tao, who's who won the Fields Medal, which is like the Nobel. Now you're just impressing me with name dropping. <laughs> well, what I, and some, uh, Lauren Ansel Myers uh, did a lot of mathematical modeling for COVID outbreaks. So... Why I'm so excited about it is this year has kind of been blah for everybody. And so now I'm in the middle of planning for these students who are coming this year. And they're so inspiring. They have so many dreams and, and wishes for the future. And I really think if we, you know, with regard to infectious disease and things like that, we we follow the same cycle in this world. We throw money when there's an outbreak. We retreat and take it away in between, even though our greatest adversary is going to be future pandemics, future emerging infections. Nature is always going to be what we deal with throughout the future. So now we should really be proactive and not reactive. If we really want to advance cancer therapies, this is what we should be investing in is the next generation who are going to come up with things that maybe make chemotherapy obsolete. The best time to get a job is when you have one. <laughs> I'll put it that way. People say that. I'll, lay, I'll just go right to the schoolhouse rock version of that. <laughs> How about we invest in pandemic response when we don't have a pandemic? That's right. Yeah. And you don't want to be playing catch up. You want to be able to do things that avoid all of the reverberating collateral damage that really didn't necessarily happen to that have to happen. Let's learn the lessons from this and move forward. Final question. Optimismometer from one <laughs> to 10. Are we going to be better in 10 years or worse in 10 years? Oh, yeah. <laughs> see, I'm an eternal. I like to say I'm a skeptical optimist. So I do think that humanity is humanity and the only permanence is impermanence. So unfortunately, people have had to learn hard lessons here. And the only thing I can equate it to slightly was 9-11 and being in New York at that time when the world seemed upside down. So there will be other things that arise in the future. But I already see I always have the perspective of see the opportunity, not the obstacle. And I think there are many new things that are starting now and people are really taking a personal inventory of what matters and what doesn't matter and have, you know, switched their trajectory into the future that I think is really positive and optimistic. And I think if people can hold on to the gratitude they have, given the suffering that they've so tangibly seen on many levels this past year, then we can only be in for a world of good. Dr. Jamie Wells, Double Dare champion. <laughs> I'm going to put that first. Okay. <laughs> Friend of Mark Summers, that definitely... <laughs> Trumps everything else. The director of the Research Science Institute, and you say the rest. It's collaboratively sponsored by the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and the Center for Excellence in Education. Take a look at CEE.org, and you'll see all of the wonderful programs that they run that help teacher enrichment, that help hundreds of thousands of students who don't have the opportunity to learn STEM, and all of, you know, getting the next generation to focus on all of these kinds of things is only going to better medical care in the future. So let's invest in them. You'll be hearing a lot more from Jamie here on Out of Patience. Thanks for listening. <laughs> And we'll see you next time. Thank you so much. This is a blast.
That's all for today, folks. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Brianna Seeley, Jen Horanja, and Andrew McDowell. It is mixed and edited by Brianna Seeley. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com. 